0: The spectrum of things I thought were available to me as a career were really narrow. I thought you could be in finance, maybe you could be a doctor, you could be a lawyer. Starting in college, I got really fixated on getting into finance because I felt I could make a lot of money doing it. And then I wasn't good at it, I wasn't smart enough, I was surrounded by a bunch of people that were a lot more passionate about it, a lot better at it, a lot smarter than I was. But I found myself going on a project to work on the the IMAX film. I met the founders there as part of that project. And I I remember really clearly the sense of like, oh my gosh, like that's incredible. These guys did this in, in a garage and conceived and then built this business. And that was the first real switch to drop for me. And I I literally, I I went back to New York and into my offices and I gave notice two weeks later because I realized that I was on a path that I was not going to be good at it because I just didn't
1: have the skill set to thrive there. Hi, I'm Chris Waddell. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. Welcome to Chris Waddell, Living It. Today, super excited longtime friend, Bayard Winthrop, founder and CEO of American Giant. American Giant, if, if you don't know what American Giant is, you need to know what American Giant is because they are making super cool clothing in the U.S. This is going back like decades. They are they are reviving the whole industry and it's really cool. What is it? Slate Magazine, and we'll get into this. Slate Magazine said that it's the greatest ever made. I think that that probably changed your life to a certain extent, Bayard. Bayard, thank you for joining me.
0: Chris, thanks for having me. It's great to see you, man.
1: It's always a pleasure. Now, when I look at your career, Bayard, you are an entrepreneur. I know, I love the snicker, right? My career.
0: You're still (laughs) still creating. Don't look too too hard.
1: (laughs) What's kind of funny about it, though, how did you end up being in the entrepreneur, entrepreneur world, but also you, I've heard you say you started in finance. I mean, you started on that sort of narrow path of like, this is the way that you're supposed to be successful in this world. But not only did you deviate from that, but you deviated and went into the outdoor world and the apparel where, you know, the margins, the dividends, you know, are, are not nearly what they are in the financial world. So how did that happen? Was it a conscious decision?
0: Yeah, it's funny you are asking me about that. I was literally just having a conversation about this with my CFO that, um, you know, Chris, you and I are roughly the same age. And and I have thought a lot about when we were coming into our professional lives, at least for me, you kind of the, the 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 spectrum of things I thought were available to me as a career were really narrow. I thought you could be in finance, maybe you could be a doctor, you could be a lawyer. It never really occurred to me. Um, and then I think for my mom, there was also this—you know—you do something productive with your hands. You could be a carpenter, you could be a landscaper, or some other thing. But it never occurred to me that there were all these other choices, career choices that were out there. <clears throat> and I, starting in college, I got really fixated on getting into, into finance because I felt I could make a lot of money doing it. And it's kind of what a lot of successful fathers in my town were doing. And finally got, in, got a job after a bunch of summer jobs in finance. And then I wasn't good at it. I wasn't smart enough. I was surrounded by a bunch of people that were a lot more passionate about, a lot better at it, a lot smarter than I was. Um, but I found myself going on a project to... Um, work on on, the, the guy, on IMAX Film, big format film company that we all know or should know because they make incredible products. But I met the founders there as part of that project. And I, I remember really clearly the sense of like, oh my gosh, like that's incredible. These guys did this in, in a garage and conceived and then built this business. And that was the first real switch to drop for me And I I literally, I I went back to New York and into my offices and I gave notice two weeks later because I realized that I was on a path that I was not going to be good at. It was not going to be a good 25-year journey because I just didn't have the skill set to thrive there. And then the second big piece to your point was I moved on a lark uh, out to San Francisco. I I got a, a phone call from a friend and I knew I was leaving New York. I was heading to Seattle, actually. And he said, "Well, would you ever go to San Francisco? I'm you know, looking for a roommate." So I, I ended up doing that. It was that random, and then through connections, I found a, a couple of guys that work in the outdoor industry, and I got that job. And it was the opposite of banking. I, I, I loved it. I was good at it. I was learning all these things. I never wanted to leave the office, and and that kind of was the second penny to drop for me, which was loving products, loving making consumer products, and that ultimately morphed into apparel. But it was one of these you know, kind of <clears throat> life circumstances that, that changed my career that I'm just eternally grateful for because I think without me having had that experience, I might still be stuck, you know, doing a job I didn't like and was particularly good at. Well,
1: it's interesting that your mother had said, you know, do something with your hands as well, create something because effectively that is what you're doing. But the pressure, because Bayard and I, a little background, Bayard and I went to school together. So we went to Eagle Brook School in Deerfield, Mass., and then went to Deerfield Academy, and this is where you start making your plans for the future, and you see what's around you. And you grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut, and and so yeah, you start seeing the people who are successful, and hey, you're smart, you you know you, you're competitive. This is the way that you need to go, and and I think it really is easy to have those blinders on. Were you always like an outdoor kind of guy, though? I mean, like like you know, snowshoes, like ending up at, at a snowshoe company. I, is that anywhere you ever imagined yourself starting out?
0: No, I think so. Actually, it, it, it's funny. to just kind of go back and think about this stuff. But so my, and I don't know whether you and I have ever talked about this, Chris, but, but my, so my folks got divorced. When I was really young and my mom raised me and I have two older brothers. And, um, she, she is a really interesting woman that, that, you know, I, I, my dad was paying for all of my education. So I was going to places like Eagle Brook and Deerfield. Um, but I was coming home to a home situation where mom was taken on boarders and we're, you know, she was renting out the rooms in the house to make her, her payments. And so I think that instilled in me a certain amount of, of uh, maybe financial insecurity and kind of wanting to be successful financially. But she also, she had this almost this binary quality to her that she really wanted us to be able to be able to, to fix a front stair or to lay down a patio, but she also wanted me to go to Harvard. <laughs> so it was like this, you know, she, she was this, uh, so I, but, but she, there was a lot of value placed on capability by her. And so she really wanted to raise capable sons. And so I think in the rear of my brain, that there, there was always a lot of desire to make, build, repair, be able to fix things. But in the front part of my brain, I was—I don't think I mapped that to a career. I, the career mapping just was go make money. You do that by getting into finance. You become a lawyer, and so I think, you know, my guess is you probably were thinking quite, you know, you know, clearly about what you wanted to do with your life in high school. I really wasn't. I was, I was, you know, I wanted to get out of school. I wanted to get working, but it was those were kind of ill-formed ideas. They weren't. They weren't kind of career-oriented. I always loved being outdoors. I always loved, you know. Being in the woods, and I grew up hunting and fishing, and um, but the but the snowshoe thing was a random thing. It was not a, I want to get into the outdoor industry as much as it was just a circumstantial lucky thing.
1: <laughs> it, it's interesting. I feel like for me, you know, my, my accident put me on. You know, I had a skiing accident my freshman year in college, and and it put me on an entirely different trajectory. But yeah. I also remember going back for our five year reunion at Deerfield, and it seemed like I don't know what like. 90% of the class was in law school. Yeah, you know, it seemed like there, there's a narrowly defined. Well, it's interesting
0: Do you. I mean, I, I've always and yeah, I don't know if you and I ever talked about this. I've always wondered if this was the case with you and your accident. But for me, you know, th- there are these moments in life where you hit these intersection moments. One of mine was I lost a lot of weight when I was about, you remember this. When you knew me, I was I was probably 60 or 70 pounds overweight. Um, but there are these moments that you hit these intersections where, or career change, like leaving banking or your skiing accident where you're in a chair, like these things, they create these intersections. They can go well or badly, obviously. But I, I do look at these defining moments where, in some ways, there are these enormous gifts that open up these whole new kind of um, journeys that you might not otherwise have discovered about yourself that I find really interesting. And I, I've always wondered whether that was true about you and your accident, whether it Obviously, put you on a whole different trajectory. But if there are elements of that that are like, wow, I never, never occurred to me that this opportunity was available to me without the accident or losing weight or this fundamental shift in careers or whatever might be.
1: Well, it's interesting too, right? Because you have relatively young children. Yep. Right. And so, I mean, much, much younger. You started later on. Are you are you instilling this kind of a message? Are you are you giving them this kind of a message of like? hey, there's a wide world out there. Don't, don't, follow, don't fa- feel like you have to follow the crowd.
0: Man, I hope so. Um, my kids are young. They're four, six, and 10. Um, my wife is just a force of nature, and, and she, is, uh, she was an architect, and she grew up in a very different household from mine. They were very tight-knit, and lots of art and creativity there. So I think that there's some part of that that just be, us being who we are just kind of through osmosis gets down to the kids. And I I do think that it's helpful to have kids understand there's lots of ways that you can go build a career. I think the one universal thing though is it's got to be underpinned by hard work and, and best efforts. And I think we try to, I hope we parent and already we're hopefully doing this is instilling both those things. Figure out what you're good at and what you love and then work your ass off in support of it. But I think you can't have one without the other, I think. I think well you could probably have hard work without loving what you're doing. But I think in a perfect world, you find what you love and then you break yourself trying to be successful at it. And I think, so I hope we're instilling that. We certainly try to, we're aspiring to do that. Um, And we're trying to do it with our day-to-day actions. I hope they're picking up on it. (laughs) We'll see, we'll see.
1: (laughs) It's a challenge though, isn't it? I mean, I think you learn a lot in the house. You learn some in school, you learn some from your peers and try to figure out how you piece it together let's get to American giant because you're talking about a lot of the values. What are the, what are the values? Well, like why, you know, we talked about the, the, the hoodie. Why, why did you decide you wanted to make clothing in the U S and, you know, you and I grew up in New England. I grew up in Massachusetts and I see those, I see those mills, right? Mill town. Yep.
0: Well, so I think that's, that's great context because we also grew up at a time call it, the early '80s through, you know, the early aughts, let's say, where <clears throat> all of our thinking was around sort of this this generalized um, economic philosophy around libertarian trade and libertarian capitalism and economic economic um, uh, uh, policy making, which meant trade is good in every instance, all the time, and we want to have an unfettered capitalist system whenever we can. It's the best way to lift people out of poverty and improve quality of living, those things are all true. Um, I, I sort of accepted them unquestionably all through my early finance career, my education, and, and all through the, the early part of my my manufacturing career. Um, but there's more, obviously, like all these things, there's more nuanced around the reality of that. And I think that when you spend any time in, in manufacturing in the U.S., which I did for throughout my career, and most of my, my manufacturing stuff has been about starting off with businesses that had manufacturing footprints in the United States and then moving overseas and chasing cheaper means of production. When you do that enough, it's, it's hard to not see the, what you're leaving in the wake, whether it's the mill towns in Massachusetts or uh, Connecticut or the old textile facilities and <clears throat> the Carolinas. Um, there has been a very profound impact of this pursuit of libertarian trade policy and libertarian economic thinking. There's been some benefits. We can get a flat screen TV for 99 bucks now but you pay for that move in really profound ways, in 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 a, in a I think a declining set of options for a middle and lower middle class working American. I think a, a increasingly less dimensional economy where we make fewer and fewer things here. And as I watched that in my career, it began to dawn on me that I wasn't I was at first unsure about the, the benefits of that of that uh, decision making and that policy and that un uncertainty moved into um, feeling like it was not good and that the apparel industry particularly was really bad. And it was it was presenting a view to the world that said, we care deeply about human rights and gay rights and the environment, and global warming, but they were pursuing um, operational approaches and, and uh, there was in direct conflict to that, that they were moving their production to the, the cheapest means of production, the lowest environmental standards whenever they could and I had just had my baby, my first, my oldest girl, she was two weeks old and I got fired from my old job. And I was beginning to think about what I wanted her to see and the kind of legacy I wanted to leave. And I got really convinced that I wanted to build an apparel business that did things differently. And that was more in tune with the values that I had. And I think most Americans have, and wanted to build a business on the back of that, that could offer up an alternative in the market to customers. So that, that was the, not to give you a long answer there, but that was the emotional genesis behind the business. Um, you know, ten now, ten years ago,
1: to to honor your daughter and to leave a legacy, and to you know, in some ways, to to create this this pride. Well, I mean,
0: it's back to the question you were asking about, like, how do you instill your values in your kids? Well, we'll probably you, you do it by what you do every day. And I I didn't want to leave a legacy of like, you know, Dad did all right, he, but he you know he, he he ripped out a whole bunch of you know manufacturing capabilities and moved them overseas and left a bunch of you know people without jobs in his wake. But but he did well, I, that just felt. Um, not satisfying, and I and I just to go even further, farther afield. I, I think a lot of the you know the current division in the country can trace its roots back to a growing sense that there's this widening divide between big corporations that are making tons of money and and they're you know supported by Hollywood and D.C. and the and the finance world and the legal world, and then there's kind of everybody else that used to make things in this country and produce things in this country, and those people are really getting left behind. And I just didn't want to be a part of that. And I I knew. We could build a uh, a good business pursuing that, whether it could be big or small. I didn't know, but I knew we could build a good business, and I knew it would be the kind of business that I'd be proud to run. and uh, And that was the extent of my thinking on it was that I wanted to do something I was proud of, and I would let the you know I'd let the marketplace and customers decide whether they wanted to make it a big business. But I wanted to do a business that I was proud of, and that I felt had really sturdy values underneath it.
1: When you told people this, what was the reaction? We're going to, we're going to build clothing in the U.S. What was the reaction?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I mean, it was
1: mixed, right? I
0: mean, from the vast majority of people that said uh, it'll never work. Don't do it. It's absurd. But re- revealingly, uh, my oldest brother, Jay, when I told him about it, he's a very disciplined thinker. He's a very smart guy. His reaction was, you got to go do that. Like that's the business you were born to build um, literally into my, you know, 20 minutes into my hour long pitch, which is
1: interesting. And why, why did he say that? Why was it the business that you were supposed to build?
0: Because I think it, he knew he and I you know were brothers. We grew up in, in the same dynamic. And I think he understood intuitively that this was something that was going to tap into a really core cool, passionate thing. And, and I think he probably also intuitively understood that, that, uh, that, consumers would respond to it with just a, you know, because, you know, we, we, Chris, you and I grew up in, in, in the same era. I mean, we grew up around the great American brands, the Levi's and the Wranglers and the Red Wings and the Woolriches and the Champions and all these great brands that stood for something, made great product, they were made here. And I just felt, you know, I think he and I both understood that, you know, those were not in the market anymore. And that there was an opportunity from a business standpoint to maybe rebuild a business like that, the customers would really respond to as well. So I think he saw both the personal piece of that and then also the business opportunity. So there was mixed reaction, but most people said, don't do it.
1: <laughs> well, it's nice to have an endorsement from somebody you respect though, as well. <laughs> right? Exactly. Exactly. It helps. <laughs> who would who would certainly not who would not spare your feelings for for honesty, yep. right?
0: Well, that's right. I mean, he would that's exactly right. You're 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 that's intuitive. I mean, he would have he would have told me just as comfortably. It's a terrible idea. I don't do that. Um, and I respect his opinion a bunch. So it was, it was a good endorsement to get.
1: How has it been going back to some of these places, going back to the Carolinas, meeting with some of these people? Because this is, this is generational too, isn't it? People who have no, worked right. in these mills and, and the pride that they have that in some ways has, has been taken from them, right?
0: Yeah, so there is, you know, I think one of the most gratifying parts of building American Giant and the supply chain has been that and, and you know, on the, on the negative side, for the last 40 years, as we have really encouraged big businesses to move their production overseas, the, the business, the capital has gone with it. And so there's now this, this, this weird imbalance that if you go to facilities in places like Guangzhou or Shenzhen in China, you'll see textile facilities and footwear facilities that are, are automated, advanced, they're well-lit. There's, there's the kind of latest and greatest technology and innovation happening there. Um, in many cases, the factories that you go to domestically, they've been undercapitalized and underinvested with. And to your point, they oftentimes are generational businesses that have been you know, within the same family for two or three generations. They tend to have not a lot of available capital to automate and to invest. Interesting conversations there about what the role of federal government ought to be in terms of supporting these family businesses to help them stay keep competitive. So on the one hand, going into these facilities was like, wow, this is going to be a challenge. On the other hand, there was this deep, well wealth of expertise and know-how, there was a incredible sense of, uh, just give us a shot. We can do this. Like Give us a chance. And and on top of all that, there was the ability, and I say this a bunch, I probably said it to you before, that in a, in a day, basically, you can travel with me and see cotton getting harvested out of the ground, gin to the local gin, spun into yarn, knitted into cloth and sewn into a sweatshirt in, you know, if you get up early enough with me at six in the morning, and by the end of the day, you'll see the finished product coming off the line, that um, integrated connection to the product was just the most invigorating thing I've ever been a part of in my life. And so, so there was good and bad, but, but the good way outweighed the bad. And we now have this dynamic supply chain that is all across the country. And and thousands of people, and and uh, and the enthusiasm, and the expertise, and the quality is incredible. So, um, it's been a very gratifying, very exciting part of of the supply chain. But there, it's not without its challenges because the, it, the the supply chain is relatively outdated and underinvested compared to what else is out there. So,
1: and that's the challenge, isn't it? Because it's almost like I mean, you're a team with these with these other or other companies, but at the same time it's almost like you're building a couple of companies or a few companies where it's not just your company. You're having to, to hopefully help ensure that this other company will be successful so they can continue to work with you as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, that, that that is a complexity for sure is that, um, you, you, you truly do enter into partnership with your supply chain in, in ways that are, um, I certainly didn't appreciate and understand going into it and that, and that make, um, that make it, uh, maybe more challenging logistically, but also those are outweighed by great working relationships and, and, and personal interactions. So we do get into situations where we are working with factories to say, okay, we need you know 30,000 of these sweatshirts. And they say, great, can you stretch out the production across three months? Not what we want, we'd like to forget everything, but maybe we'll you know we'll whack it up into you know, 12,000 units a month uh, to, to hit the target and level load their capability. On the other hand, when things like the pandemic hit, I can, you know, call up on a first-name basis our supply chain partners and say, "Listen, we, we don't know what's ha- what's happening here. We don't know how bad this is going to be. We need it. We need you guys to hang tight, cancel our current orders." And in that instance, you know, across the supply chain, we had partners saying, "We got it, and and don't worry about it. We'll take care of you, and don't worry about these orders. We'll sit on them till you need them." And so it cuts both ways. And so those, you know, the depth of those relationships has been. In some, in some cases difficult to, to navigate, but they've more than paid off in, in that working relationship and how integrated we are with those partnerships. So um, it's been different than any manufacturing role I've ever been a part of in my career, so.
1: Well, it's, it's funny too, right? Because it's it brings a greater sense of responsibility and and a responsibility to the product, to your company, to your investors, to your suppliers, and how how has that been because you started with next to nothing i mean you started with this idea that you said hey this is going to be a great idea we should do it and then you go from the idea to okay let's make this happen what's the story that you told yourself as you were going along saying we're going in the right direction you know keep going don't quit what's the story you told yourself there
0: well uh, in, the, in the early days, uh, that's a lonely journey, right? Because you, the questions are big and, and hard to navigate and you, you, there's at least as many failures as there are glimmers of hope that are happening and, and hurdles you got to clear, dead ends you run down. Um, so I think, and maybe this is connected to that Slate article coming out that we can talk about in a minute, but, um, but then you get sort of externalities that, that give you confidence um, but those are you know those take time to generate but 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 back to the product itself I, I will tell you this that um when you are as intimately involved as we are in the making of a product a sweatshirt or a pair of jeans or a jacket or something where you are meeting and working with the the, the cotton growers and the and the ginners and the yarners and, and the knitters and kind of all the steps along the way and you're you're in those facilities you know those people you know the people that's doing the napping on the fleece that you're producing and you're seeing those those component parts come through the line. It creates a connection to to your point to the suppliers, to the men and women that are making that stuff, but to the product itself. And you have this heightened sense of responsibility and stewardship over the products that you make, and uh, and and the commitment with the people that make them on your behalf and in partnership with you, and the customer that ultimately is going to support it. And so, you know, I I, I you know I, I always think about you know knowing intimately those components of the supply chain, it's hard for me to articulate to you how me knowing a cotton farmer in North Carolina results in a better sweatshirt. But it just, it does because it does deepen this connection to the products that you make. And and so I think that alone, just the the process of building that initial sweatshirt that we built and seeing that begin to come together and seeing the enthusiasm it began to come out of the men and women that were making it and the, the quality of the fleece we were making and the, and the raw materials we were adding and the draw cords that creates its own momentum and confidence and and uh, that really carried us for that first year it was really believing wow we made something special here and um and we were proud of it and we were able to do it and those that, that gives you a lot of tailwind in those early months
1: well it also sounds like i mean we started this conversation with the concept of the essential in some ways of like, of building something with your hands, of, of, of building it from the ground, of, of being able to touch it, and almost like, you know, the tactile sense, as opposed to a spreadsheet sense of like, boom, 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 this is the way these things go, right? And it, it, it seemed like on a, on a visceral level for you, that was part of who you were, and that connection to these people reinforces that both for you and the product. Is that fair to say?
0: Yeah, and I would also just say that, like, just in your own, you know, in all of our own kind of frame of references here, like that that beer on Friday night tastes a hell of a lot better after you've had you've worked your tail off all week and you've been productive and you've been necessary than if you spent a week sitting around and not doing much. And and I can just tell you that when you start to go into these facilities that were shuttered or were underemployed or understaffed, and you start to see people that are a part of producing the products that we make and, and the pride and the contribution that goes along with it, um, that is just tremendously energizing and rewarding. And, um, and you know, we, we did this big effort two years ago to build a flannel in the US, for example, and that, that was a big undertaking. But little by little, as that began to work itself out, and you began to solve little and big problems, and new facilities came online. And it just, there's a momentum that builds with that. And you begin to assemble these people. Like we brought this one guy out of retirement, there was an old yarn dyer. And you suddenly have, it's almost like assembling like a, you know, like the, I don't know, the 1980 Olympic hockey team. You have all these people that are coming together, and they're like, wait, I think we can do this. And then someone on the other side of them was like, listen, I, I know how we can get that yarn dying done. And there's this energy that builds and this pride. And, and, uh, so it is, it, it is that piece. I'm not sure I understood that, um, that that was going to be so present, but that is a piece that is makes getting up every day, just feeling like I've got the best job in the world, because you get to be a part of this incredible confluence of, of talent and drive and passion that is just, uh. Um, totally invigorating and, and, uh, and there's the sense of like awakening in the US manufacturing piece on textiles. It's like, whoa, everyone's talking about this dead. It's like dead. There are these incredible parts of capability. Like, we've almost done a 180 in that. It's, it's shocking to us that, that more of these larger corporations don't say, wait, you know, I'm going to get out of this complex, environmentally terrible, globalized supply chain and start doing more stuff here because it, it's working. Like there's lots of stuff here that, is, that we can be really competitive at and really good at. So it's been really neat.
1: It's part of who we are as people, isn't it? I mean, the idea totally. is like we want to belong, and when we belong, we're willing to pour our heart into it. But if we, you know, if we don't feel like that's going to be, you know, reciprocated or whatever, you know, it's like we, we don't we don't want to get our heart stomped on, but we want to we want to belong. And have you seen? Other companies, have you seen people coming to you wanting to be part of what you're doing as a result of, you know, just the general uh, the general feeling, the culture of the company?
0: Yeah, I would say that a couple of folks about that. I think it's it's the belonging, and it's it's the just the intuitive recognition that we should be honoring and rewarding people for good work, and and we ought to be providing the opportunity for people to put in a good week's work and to, and to hold open the possibility that they're going to have a, be able to pass on a you know, better life for their kids if they, if they put in 30 years of a career working hard. And so I think there's that is a very human nature kind of thing that we all intuitively understand that. And then to your second question about people that, are, you know, I think there's a lot of really great companies that are out there that are doing a lot of great things. And I think that there's a recognition, you know, Chris, you were a part of our Delta project, which is where we highlight people in, in all different segments of society that are, are good, strong voices for change and improvement. And I think there's a, there is a sense about surrounding yourselves with, with other people of, of like mind and kind of getting the brand in good company with other people and other brands and other leaders. I think that does happen a lot. I think people see an American giant, maybe an unwillingness to hear no, and that through line is, that's a truism for, you know, your career and the advocacy that you do and the, and the outreach you do with, uh, with, with people and children about overcoming diversity and obstacles and things like that. I think that universal point of view that there's a, almost a mentality, like I want to surround myself with people that, um, that see the finish line. They don't see the hurdles in between. And, and so in that regard, I think we do, uh, we do do work with other companies. We're, we're actually in the middle of a project right now with Sam Adams, the beer company. Um, but we, you know, we, we, I think people of a like mind tend to find one another. And, and, um, and you know, the good news is there's lots, as you know, there's lots and lots of people that are doing phenomenal stuff all across the country. Most of them get into our catalog, you are on the cover of one of our catalogs for that reason. And so I think that, um, it goes both ways. You know, we, we, we like to fill ourselves with a bunch of other people in and businesses and, and and they, hopefully us and, uh, and we just, yeah, uh, that circle tends to build as you start to be around and affiliate with folks that starts to you know, build its own momentum so um so yeah
1: yeah which is cool and and so yes I was in your catalog and you celebrate the stories of of people in your catalogs and certainly uh uh Sam Adams is a similar kind of thing right where he was he was an analyst I had grown up in the beer industry and then you know with it with the fan and decided I wanted to go into it and his father's like don't do that don't don't go into the beer industry. So
0: unlike unlike my brother, I believe this is true. His dad told him like that is the stupidest idea I've ever heard. Um, but he did, I mean, he made a pretty basic bet too. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to build a good beer. It's going to cost a bit more. I'm going to put in the simplest, best ingredients I can with the best processes I can and customers are going to care about it. And, uh, it's it's a simple story, but it's a it's a powerful one, and it's one that resonates with us a lot. It's, it, it actually there's some phenomenal parallels between the making of a, of of a good lager and the making of a good sweatshirt in terms of the integrated nature of the supply chains and the emphasis on ingredients and stuff. So, but anyway, that's that's just an example And I think, um, you know, you you, you uh, hopefully you live by a set of, of pretty simple values. You, you you live by them. You don't waver. And that attracts some attention and some like-minded folks around the business. And that's been the case with us. We've been lucky enough to have a lot of people on the company that we really
1: admire. Now, how did that work? Right. Because I mean, you connected with some great people. You feel like you want to go to work every day. When did it happen that people started buying your stuff where you realized, okay, we can be around. I mean, I remember sort of it was early on with like the rolling stones right and they were interviewing nick and and he they'd had a decent album and he's like yeah i think that means that we can be around for like another three years you know like early 60s kind of thing you're like three years or you know 45 or whatever it is you know either or you know when did you feel like (laughs) hey we we can actually really be around
0: oh man whatever i don't know if you ever do i mean but i'll tell you my journey on that in that regard. So. You know, there was the the ideation phase. Like, I think this is the kind of business I want to I want to build. And then there was a year of developing the first product and getting all those element. That was all breathtaking and scary. And I had an investor that kind of underwrote that, that made it possible. That was uh, very we were very lucky to have him around. And then we launched the product about a year later. And you know, I had this naive idea that this product was going to be so great that people would care and they support the company. And and we had no marketing. We had no, we just said, we're going to launch it. We're going to.
1: You need that, right? I mean, you need well, that naivete to go, Hey, we're going to build a great thing and people are going <laughs> to love it. Right. This gets... yeah,
0: It's just like, fair enough. But God, I look back at that. And I'm like, that is just the stupidest thing. Like, you know, I, I, you know, the internet's a lonely place. If no one, no one knows you're there. And so um, we, we did at launch, we got a little bit of attention and a few people bought um, and, This was in February of 2012, and we were just making a men's only sweatshirt at that point. And there was enough there that for the next eight or 10 months, I I convinced myself that I should keep the lights on and show up at work every day. And you know, Chris would show up and buy a sweatshirt, and then maybe a month later, he'd show up again and buy his brother one. And and there was enough there that I was like, hey, someone is liking the product enough to buy it a second time. Like, okay, maybe we're onto something here. But it was lean living that first year. And then um, in December of 2012, I think, or maybe late November, as you mentioned, we got an article written in Slate Magazine that was, at the time, just a digital publication that the title of the sweatshirt was, uh, This is the Greatest Hoodie Ever Made. And the and brief backstory on that is that the guy that wrote that is a guy named Farhad Manju. He's now an editorial writer for the New York Times. But Farhad, at that time, was living down south of San Francisco and was writing for Slate. And I was an admirer of his and I sent him an email and said, hey, Farron, I think, let me look at this. I think we make a really great sweatshirt. And I think he was like, ah, I'm sick of writing about tech.
1: Hold on. According to him, it was you were a little bit more forceful than that. I think <laughs> That's made, trip, right. <laughs> you're saying, I think we make a great sweatshirt from him. It was like we, we have the greatest sweatshirt.
0: That's why. Right. So in either case. I somehow got him and I, my guess is on the far as ever said this to me, my guess is he probably was like, I get to go out and do something different for a few hours, but that few hour meeting turned into four days of really deep um, research into the business and the philosophy behind the business and the sweatshirt itself. And anyway, he wrote that article and that article was like a bomb detonating the living room. I mean, I, I do not think it's an overstatement to say that without that article, we wouldn't be here. It went totally viral. And we sold out of everything we had. We sold out of everything that we had on order, every bit of yarn, every bit of fabric. And that tipped us into a position where we were chasing orders for the next three and a half years, almost four years. And, you know, back order lines that lasted for six months. And um, that, the reason why that article mattered, well, it mattered because it got us bigger. And so we, we became more sustainable and all that stuff that all helped. But as I thought back on that, in some ways, the most important thing it did is it gave me the confidence that I was onto something that was resonating, and that you know when you, it is it is lonely when you're an entrepreneur. I mean, you just don't know. You don't know if you'll care enough. into the Rolling Stones analogy, even now, I mean, I can't tell you how much it matters to have a customer email me, write me a letter, call me up, and say I love your sweatshirt. I mean, it's just like it, it it gets me so excited and so grateful now. And and some of that is just still in that very. Um, fragile relationship. Are we doing the best that we can be doing? And how's our service? And how is our how are our products? And so I don't know if you ever get to a point where you're like, oh, we, we got it now. I'm certainly incrementally more confident about the business now. It's much bigger. It's got we make jeans and jackets, and men's and women's retail stores, and all these other things. But it still is a almost a daily kind of questioning about are we being as good as we could be? And is the product great? And so I uh, Certainly more confident today, but I don't know if, if we've reached a point where we're like, "Oh, we got this." We're not. We're not there for sure.
1: <laughs> so now, when you sold out, I mean, this is this is a watershed moment, right? You sold out. You sold out for months. You're trying to fulfill orders, which is great because you also know that there's there's continually there's money continuing to come in, right? Which is one of the biggest worries <laughs> when you're yep. Yep. when you're an entrepreneur. I have people who are here. I need to keep paying them it's a confirmation of who you are, but was that a, was that a scary moment too? Like, I mean, is there, is there the imposter syndrome of it? Uh, is there, you know, how, how do you reconcile that kind of stuff and say, yeah, I'm going forward. Like I, I'm, I'm ready. I know what I'm doing. Totally,
0: totally, totally, totally. Yeah. I mean, so let me just say that back to you, you're, you're riding this wave, you're questioning, wait, is this just a you know, momentum on the back of an article of, of one reporter and is there substance? And, and so that was absolutely there. Um, it still is to a certain extent about wondering, we launched new programs. And so we launched women's in 2014, two years later, that was a breathtaking moment. You know, will women, now women are more than half the business. Will women appreciate the brand? We launched t-shirts. Does our sweatshirt customer, will they care about t-shirts? We launched denim. Yeah, exactly. Like We're denim, on. jackets, yeah. 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 Thank you for that, by the way. But all those questions are, those are all scary. And, and, and they all cause you to ask the question, like, are we, do we have permission to be there? Does the customer want us to be there? Do do we know how to do that? Well, flannel, you know, making a great flannel, do we know how to do that? And so there is that, it's a nice way to think about it. There is that constant sense about, And we, by the way, have had tons of failures. You know, we've we've pushed into categories maybe that we haven't done that well, or invested a bunch of money into products that didn't bear out, or we couldn't ultimately make. And so, absolutely, there is. And I think little by little, I think you do begin to gain more confidence. Some of it is just you're big enough that you know you can make mistakes and it's not going to bother you much. And some of it is that you begin to assemble. You know, we have just a phenomenal team at American Giant now, and. You know, the product team here and the development team and the manufacturing team, they're just amazing. None of that was in place 10 years ago. So you begin to build in the capability that, you know, you start to hire people that are way better at the job than you could ever be. That provides some measure of confidence. And so little by little, I think that you mitigate that. But it does, it took a while. And and there's still some of that as you enter a new category. You still always have that question back in your brain, like, are we going to be great at this or not? And, um, And hopefully we have the wisdom to identify when we can't be great at something and we don't do it. So um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting evolution that little by little, that growing sense about, you know, are we more stable? Are we going to last? Are we going to be here? Can we be good in this category? It's a, it's an interesting thing to kind of step back from and try to think about.
1: What's the reaction from the apparel industry? Cause you guys are disruptors, right? You're coming in, everybody's going, no, no, you can't do it. You've got to go to Thailand. You've got to go to China. You're going to North Carolina.
0: Yeah, we, um, it's, it's interesting. I, we have an uncomfortable relationship with the industry as a whole, I think, because to your point, we really are, um, we are a pretty clear uh, counterpoint to the accepted narrative. And it's an uncomfortable narrative, right? Because if you dig on it a little bit and start to ask why, if you, you know, on the face of it, if you, if you truly cared about environmental impact of the apparel industry, uh, you would not uh, be putting t-shirts on, on uh, big tankers and send them across oceans and burning the world's dirtiest fuel. It's just terrible for the environment. You wouldn't pursue disposable clothing where you're throwing away huge amounts of clothing every year and incinerating it or putting it in a landfill. Um, if you cared about human rights, you would not be making in places that don't have good human rights laws. And so all these things, I think it's, we're posing uncomfortable questions to the industry. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is there are a handful of, uh, of American-based apparel companies um, who are genuinely trying to do the right thing. Some of them are private. They've got a bit more flexibility. Some of them are public and have to answer shareholders, uh, but are trying to do the right thing and are not certain as to how to do it. Um, because for the public companies, they have to balance their, um, their financial performance and, and the pressure on shareholders in the short term with what is the long-term health of the business. And for the private companies, there, there may be um, questions about, and for the public companies too, about if we acknowledge that we are not making things in the best way and we're trying to correct it, does that expose the fact that we're not making things in the best way? But I will say that among the, among the domestic companies, we have brought a number of them through our supply chain, the senior leaders of those companies, and shown them how we're doing things. And I'm of a mind that we happen to make all of our stuff in the U.S., from the cotton in the ground all the way through, we're, we're pretty purist about that. Um, but that is not necessarily what everyone needs to do. Um, for the big apparel companies, just progress, just movement in the right direction would help. Um, p- putting a program in, in US factories, making a commitment to a percent of their production being domestic would help to build up the capability and the velocity in the US supply chain. And so um, there's this public facing piece of it where I think everyone's kind of uncomfortable with what we're doing because we're exposing a, a lie in the apparel industry that, that needs to be exposed to my judgment. But privately, I think there's a lot more openness to learning and figuring out what we're doing and how we're doing it and what the challenges have been and what the opportunities are. And I'm, I'm super optimistic about what's coming in the next 10 years of textiles. I think the, the momentum is, has built a bunch and there's policy changes that are coming. There's consumer awareness that's coming. And I think brands are starting to wake up to that and move in a way that's super encouraging.
1: And, and people are listening to you. It sounds like. I mean, do they do they listen? Because you're sort of. I mean, you're like a punk kid.
0: Yeah, it's hard not to, right? I mean, it's hard. It, it, there's a point at which it becomes hard not to listen to it, right? As we get bigger, as consumers start to talk talk about it, as as I, you know, am, am invited on to be with people like you, and people hear about it, it begins to raise questions that, that I think people have to answer. And I think at the, yeah, you know, I think it just distills down into a simple idea that you know, are we as consumers comfortable? with having really appropriate standards in my mind about labor rates and environmental protections. Are we okay with allowing our biggest corporations that are making the most money to squirt away from those regulations and controls to places that don't honor those regulations? Is that an okay thing for us while we basically penalize our domestic producers? I think that conversation is moving into the center of the table. And I think, as I often say, you know, maybe you got two completely different administrations, the Trump administration, the Biden administration, one of the few places they've totally aligned on is a question about domestic manufacturing and our trade policy and trying to rebalance our trade, our trade playing field. And so I think that the policymakers are, in some ways, are out in front of the brands in this case, which is never a good place to be. You want to be the other way around. And so I think the brands are realizing that and trying to cycle up and, and make some change. And hopefully, I'll continue to get a chance to, to speak loudly about it and get people to to be thinking about it as as uh, as clearheadedly as they need to be, in my judgment. <laughs>
1: Which is great, and we certainly hope that that's what you get a chance to do as well. When you're creating these values, you know, because in some ways you said that you, you sort of ended up here, I mean, it, almost by accident in some ways. I mean, it's a confluence and who knows where your career is going to go. If you had an idea when you were 12 years old of like, this is what I'm going to do, you know, the high likelihood is that you're either going to be wrong or you were going to be unhappy. And and you kind of find your way as you go along. Have you acquired heroes within this industry? The people that you look at and say that person's speaking my language, and and that gives me, you know, gives me hope that I can continue to shout loudly from the, you know.
0: Yeah, Yo, yeah. I think for sure. Um, I think as a, a as a general statement, I think when you see people that have. Um, the conviction of what they believe in and are willing to invest in you know, what's right versus what's easy, that tends to be a pretty good indicator of people that are, are worthy of admiration. And I think you know, there's, a, there's a number of businesses that, that, that kind of meet that standard. Patagonia is an easy one, right? Which is a company that is, I think, um, you know, people forget that it comes around for a long time and, and Yvonne Shenard had to make lots and lots of decisions that put values and quality above growth. And, um, and I think that's a, you know, those are really hard decisions to make. And I bet you know, what appears to us as outsiders and looking into that brand probably seems like linear and, and clear. My guess is that there were lots of hard decisions there and hard discussions about, um, do we really wanna turn away this business or change the way that we're doing something based on our values? Those are hard things to do. But when you see leaders that are doing that, um, have the conviction to do it, and the patience to do it, uh, those are those are leaders that I really admire, and that happens across that happens across all of our lives. It's not just business where that appears. You know, it's it's in 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 politicians, it's in it's in uh, activists, it's in speakers and artists and business leaders. So so yeah, I think I think people like Yvonne Chenard are definitely ones that I find myself looking towards and feeling are you know are, are good spiritual guides about reminding yourself that um, it may not be the easiest way, but it's the better way and and stick to your, stick to your guns, do, do do what you believe, stick to it. And the, and the customers will follow. Um, But you gotta be, you gotta, you gotta lead from the front on that stuff.
1: Yeah. It's a hard one, right? Because it's easy to have your head down and just grinding away and and we've got to keep growing and we've got to keep satisfying this and we have more people and we have to pay these people. I mean, I just, I actually just read Shenard's uh, book, uh, you know, Let My People Go Surfing, right? Which is just, which is at the essence of why he started the company. Mm-hmm. But remembering that as time goes on can be the challenge. This is who we are. This is why we started. And how do we, how do we move on? You talked about as the CEO, as the founder, that it can be a really lonely place to be. Like there, there aren't like you're, you have this responsibility. You can't really vent to your employees because you have to have this strong face moving forward of like, no, no, we're good. We've got this. We've, we're, we're optimistic. And, but, but you also created from the outside, you, you, you brought in some of your network, right? You brought in like, like your investor is somebody is the father of, of a good friend of yours, right? A good childhood friend. Uh-huh. And I, I mean, I say this all the time. Like we went to some pretty impressive schools and I, I feel like my parents paid for my network and yeah, yeah and I think yeah. You brought in a lot of these, a yeah. lot of these people. How was that? What, what was that a conscious move that you did it? Um, and, and how did it end up feeling for you? How did it end up empowering you?
0: Well, was it a conscious decision that I tapped into my network throughout my career. 100%. I mean, I, I, you're absolutely right that when you have the privilege to grow up in a place like, you know, Greenwich, Connecticut or in the town surrounding Greenwich, Connecticut, or you go to a school like Deerfield, you meet an incredible network of people that, you know, if you, and I, I have been, I think I mean, one of the lessons I really took from my uh, mom was a, I don't know, almost a dogmatic approach to kind of grabbing every opportunity that was presented to you. Um, so I, I, my whole life, I've been, been um, I think, focused on cultivating that network, that professional network. Um, with a specific example of Mr. Kendall, who, who was the original investor in American Giant, um, in the town that I grew up in, um, when, my, when our, my folks got divorced, he was one of the, only a few parents, and he and his wife, Bim, who really looked out for my mom, and by extension, us. And, and, and he became a father figure for me and somebody who was around, who was present, who was successful. And I, as I got out of college, I would go and see him once a year and buy him a coffee and just update him on what I was doing and and what questions I had and all this stuff. And he said to me, when I talked to him about, I was thinking about starting American Giant, he said, I'm going to write the first check. I want to invest in you. So that one wasn't um, intentional. That was more just, he was a very important professional guide, and mentor of mine and then became a really critical investor and 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 kind of steadying hand for the business. Um, he is a guy that you know, he built Pepsi Cola essentially, and he was a product guy, a customer guy through and through. And that matters when you are in a situation like we were with the back order and the slate situation, it can get really tempting to say, let's drop quality standards. Let's go overseas. Let's rush the volume through so we can capture this demand. And he was the guy that was saying, hey, man, what are we doing here? Let's remember, what are we doing here? And that patience and steadiness that came, he was 90 years old at that point, and he'd seen it all. And uh, that patience and steadiness to say, we're playing for you know, five innings from now, not for right now. That, that I don't know if I would have had the conviction to do that on my own if I didn't have him there with me. So, yeah, you know, like you know, Chris, with all these with all these things, it's like you know, these, these stories are all I think they're as much informed by luck and circumstance as skill and insight. I mean, you know, there are so many things along the way with American Giant that had things broken a different way, wouldn't be here. If I didn't have Mister Kendall, if the Slate article didn't happen, if you know, we weren't able to jump factories when we needed to. There are all these moments that, you know, put the put the business on, on, you know, right on the edge of failing that we got through. And so much of that happens to be who you happen to be near or next to or the advice you get at the time, I think.
1: You know, it's funny, though, too, because it's it's easy. Like, you, you've benefited from some of those things that you can call luck. We, with my organization, we've been putting out a quote every week. And I was quoting my, uh, I, I studied acting at one point. And my acting professor had said that luck is when preparation meets opportunity. And, and it was like Aurelius or somebody like that who had actually said it first. Yeah. Frank had said it really is what it came down to for me. But, but there's, there's a lot in that, right? I mean, you made some really important steps along the way and, and you were prepared for luck or you were, you, were, you, you were prepared to a certain extent for luck. You were backordered for a while you were not prepared to say yeah hey, we've got a we've got a warehouse full of stuff that we can we can serve all of you people but the thing is if you had a warehouse full of stuff you wouldn't have slept for months with that full warehouse thinking when, it-
0: yeah yeah i mean i think that's true i think i think some of it probably is preparation and 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 it's nice to hear and nice I think that's the case i think that's part of it probably i think there's another part of it that is just if you keep your shoulder against the blocking sled long enough and keep pumping your legs, eventually you'll get a breakthrough. And I think that's also true too, that I do one of the, the, I think that is true about me is I'm really dogmatic and persistent about stuff. And I kind of don't hear no. And that, I think in some ways maybe um, puts you in a position where if you're at it long enough, you'll eventually have someone come along to say, all right, I'll, I'll help. I'll write you a 25 grand check or, you know, I'll wait long enough to get your sweatshirt. So
1: well, he also he didn't just put in a boatload of money too, right? I mean, this was sort that's of right. ribs and drafts. He's like, yeah, enough to get tomorrow.
0: Yeah, he was a he was one of the most remarkable men I've ever met. I mean, he at the at a personal level, he was a great father to his children. Uh, he was a great husband to his wife. He was an incredible business leader, and he had time for me and all of that. And he was very tough, um, very demanding. Uh, but he, to your point, he wrote. A $25,000 check and gave me a series of, of uh, deliverables to hit. And he said, if you hit them, I might put in more. And uh, in retrospect, it was a great way to navigate those first couple of years because it, it made us deliver in a way that maybe if had we gotten a big check into the company would have made us a little bit more lazy or, or less disciplined about the way we were doing things. So he was a uh, he was a on the on the big things. He got he almost always got it right. He was a he was a big picture thinker that kind of cut through the bullshit a lot. And was a very very helpful uh, professional guide and mentor to me. Big part of the, the American Giant story actually.
1: You've had some success now, you know, and you can feel a little bit more comfortable. Do you maintain and how do you maintain the feeling of being that underdog of having to be scrappy?
0: Ah, uh, that's a really interesting question. I. Uh, I don't feel like we've, made, we've attained success, I guess. I think I'm much more in the mentality of like, there are these huge apparel companies that are doing it wrong and we got we to gotta set things right. There's very much a competitive David and Goliath mentality in the whole company here. I mean, every member of our team, we got about 50 people here in San Francisco and then a whole bunch more in North Carolina where we make things, South Carolina and North Carolina, we make things. And there is a tremendous sense of we are uh, in a uh, toe-to-toe pistols-drawn battle with the apparel industry.
1: And you're the outsider too, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We are the outsider
0: that no one wants crashing the gates. Yeah. I mean, I think that we are exposing a bunch of stuff that makes people really uncomfortable. And so that is at the core of what drives this business. I mean, there's Everyone in this organization. I mean, the, the level of passion and conviction about what we're doing is just profound. And it all comes from this place that, like, wait a minute, it's a apparel industry that's like Instagramming about how much they care about the environment and they're they're terrible. They're like terrible. And yet they're trying to convince us to be given credit for that. So I think that that's the fuel to the fire right there. I think.
1: <laughs> do, do you enjoy that role? Do you enjoy being that that outsider, being the the burr in the saddle kind of thing or whatever?
0: Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. Hell yeah, I do. Particularly, I think that the, the, you know, the pal pal industry is just, I think they're full of shit. I think it's just a mess. And I think they're just, they're basically lying and they're getting rich doing it. That's just, that's unacceptable. You got to get into that fight.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That is awesome. (laughs) I love it. Well, unfortunately, we've got to get you out now. You've got to, you've got to go get into a different fight i'd rather i'd
0: rather finish this conversation but chris i really appreciate it it is uh always inspiring and a joy to talk to you man i'll, I'll do it anytime
1: it's a total pleasure so by thank you for joining us thank you for what you're doing uh thank you for the clothing they're putting out there and fighting the good fight uh for all of you who've had a chance to join us i hope you enjoyed the conversation that Byron and i have had today if you have please tell your friends. Please follow us, please like us on we're on YouTube, we're on Spotify, we're on Apple. Follow us on all the usual suspects and please, please help us uh, help us give people an opportunity to hear great stories like Byrd's. fired. Byard, thanks a ton, buddy.
0: Chris, great being with you. Thank you, man. Talk to you soon.
1: Total pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to Chris Widow Living It for more stories on the adaptive community, the Paralympics, artists, athletes, entrepreneurs experts in the experience of being human. Also follow us on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to seeing you next week.